to find your seats. And as you're sitting, you uh, have a Bible, if you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19, which is where we'll be preaching from this morning. While you're turning there, let me introduce myself. Good morning. My name is Toby Gaynor. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here at King of Grace Church. It is my privilege to um, worship among you, be part of this body, this family, and this morning get to bring God's word to you as well. Um, so this morning in the church calendar is Mark, marks um, the Sunday we call Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And actually this falls incredibly well with our Old Testament series, which ended last Sunday. Uh, if you've been here, you would have heard, heard preached through a series of messages looking through the Old Testament, a number of the books of the Old Testament, seeing God's work with his people. And last Sunday, Paul preached from Luke chapter 2 uh, on Jesus as an infant being brought up to Jerusalem um, with, by his parents. And we saw through the eyes of the man Simeon and the prophetess Anna, how Jesus would be the fulfillment of all that God had spoken and promised to his people through the Old Testament. And this morning we're going to get to see another picture of Jesus being, coming up to Jerusalem, this time now at the other end of his ministry um, as he approaches the end of his earthly life, as he approaches his death and his resurrection. So um, if you have a Bible, as I mentioned, turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read from verse 28. Uh, I believe it will be projected as well if you uh, helps you there. Let me read Luke 19, chapter 20, uh, verse 28 onwards. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as, they had told, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for this passage this morning where we see again this picture into Jesus' life at this crucial stage. Lord, we can be very familiar with things that are meant to be mind-blowingly awesome. And I pray this morning that you would help us 
see through your word, which we trust is living and active. That you would help us see and you would speak afresh into our hearts. And help us to see Christ in all his glory. Lord, I pray, help me to speak and help us to hear. Amen. Well, I wonder if you're um, familiar with those sorts of pictures which are a form of optical illusion. Um, A common example are the two faces, the silhouettes of a face, uh, two faces that face one another. But they also form a vase in between the two faces. So there's kind of an optical illusion, two pictures in one. I wonder if if you've seen those sorts of things. I have another one to project, I think. I wonder what you see here. Take a moment. What do you see first of all? And then take another look and and just perhaps look a little bit more closely. You should be able to see both a young girl but also the face of an old woman. Now whichever one you see first is usually the one that's kind of most obvious to you. But then looking a little bit harder and knowing that there's a second picture there, you can see the second picture. All right, let's take that down, because otherwise you can be looking at that for the rest of the sermon. (laughs) But today's passage is a little bit like those sorts of pictures. It presents something to us, an image which is perhaps obvious at first glance, and then there's something else that God intends for us to see. But unlike the picture I just showed where maybe you're split, half of you see one picture and half of you see the other one, This time, with the passage we see in Luke, I think we're all inclined to see the obvious, the more popular image, first and foremost. And we need to study more carefully to see the complete picture that Luke paints for us and that God intends for us to see. There's obvious excitement in that passage, isn't there? There is building anticipation and excitement amongst Jesus' disciples as he comes down the Mount of Olives, out of the mountains to the east of Jerusalem, riding towards the city. Over the previous three years of his ministry around Galilee and Judea, they've seen or they've heard reports of what Luke records in verse 37, these mighty works or miracles. He's healed the sick, and not just coughs and colds, but he has made the blind see and the lame get up and walk. He's cast out demons who have threatened to literally destroy people's lives. He has exercised control over nature merely with the power of his voice. He has provided food to a multitude out of a little boy's lunchbox. And he has caused those who were dead and sometimes already even buried to breathe again and to live. All of these miracles and more have raised the hopes among his disciples that this could be the Messiah, the Christ, God's king for his people. The one God intends to be his deliverer to bring victory and peace over their enemies. And this leads the people to herald Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with great rejoicing. You may recall through our Old Testament series how Jerusalem has been the capital city, as it were, of God's interaction with 
his people from King David up to this period in which we read now. It's the location of the temple, the central focus of Jewish life. The significance of heading towards Jerusalem for a Jewish leader would be like a promising young politician deciding to head towards Washington, D.C. Or a breakout, an up-and-coming actor heading east, west, sorry, and going to Hollywood. Imagine the excitement then of his followers as, he, as they ask themselves, facing Jerusalem, coming to the city, what's he going to do now? It's not hard to appreciate. At this point, Jesus' popularity that Luke tells us in verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Who wouldn't join them? Who wouldn't join them embracing this popular hero? It's good to rejoice over a savior who holds out promise of victory and of peace over God's enemies and the enemies of his people and bring in a good and godly rule as God's chosen king. Even today, we can want to embrace that kind of popular Jesus for the same reasons. Rejoicing in the victory and peace we believe that he can bring over our enemies, although they may look different to what the Jews were facing and the disciples were facing. And we can want that popular Jesus as God's king over our lives. But we must be careful. We must be careful to embrace the real king, not a popular king of our own making or our own imagination. And that means embracing not only him, but also embracing his ways. The king cannot be separated from his ways. To know the king's ways is to truly know the king. And when we look at this passage in Luke, look carefully and look to see the whole picture. We see something that perhaps we don't see on first impression. More than just a popular king, Jesus. We see things that the disciples themselves failed to see at the time but that was revealed to them with the completion of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's the same for us. In light of the whole Bible, in light of all that we know is in the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to see that not only is the popular king here in front of us, but he has unpopular ways. The popular king has unpopular ways to victory, to peace, and to rejoicing. You and I, we cannot say that I embrace Jesus, but I don't like his ways of doing things, and I'm not going to follow after them. This morning, we are invited, God's word invites us to embrace the popular king and his unpopular ways, and find in them cause for great rejoicing and enjoy true victory and peace. So let's consider the passage under three Headings, three unpopular ways of this popular king. The first is in verses 28 to 36, where we see victory by humility. The passage begins with Jesus taking control over his entry into Jerusalem and what it's going to look like. He sends a couple of his disciples out to go find this young donkey. We're not sure as whether it's um, some sort of prearrangement that he's had or whether he just prophetically um, anticipates what will happen. It doesn't really make much difference. 
either could be true. But the disciples find the donkey just as Jesus described it and bring it back to Jesus. And I think it's important that Jesus takes direction, takes charge here, because everyone else had an opinion of what the king's arrival to the city should look like, based on their own expectations. The expectations of the Jewish people were that they were looking for a king to bring victory over their present enemy. In their minds, the Roman occupiers. Israel, the land of Israel and its capital, was an occupied nation, and their city was an occupied city. Subject to the authority of Caesar in Rome, exercised through local governors who enforced upon them Roman law and Roman taxes. Even prior to the Jews, people, the Jewish people conceived of victory in terms of delivery from foreign nations. Having a secure and prosperous land and city under God's rule, under God's king, is what victory looked like in their eyes. And then alongside the Jewish expectations of victory, there were other expectations in the culture in which we, we read as this morning. The Romans had very grand expectations of what a victorious commander riding into his city would look like. For a military commander who had led Roman forces to victory, the general would typically wear a crown of laurel and then dress in an all-purple toga trimmed in gold. And he would parade in riding a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome in procession, followed by his army and their captives, and the spoils of war. <clears throat> Jesus deliberately avoids both the people and the culture's expectation of what victory should look like, or what a victorious king should look like. Even though he had command of legions of angels and could immediately, in an instant, achieve the victory the Jewish people were looking for, and deserved all the accolades and infinitely more that the Romans attributed to their conquering general. Instead, he chose to announce his arrival in humble manner, riding on a young donkey. The scale of his humility is, I think, hard to fathom. And I think it's lost on the disciples, and it's often lost on us. They tried to make the most of their situation, of, of what they're seeing before them, and tried to still shape it into what they're expecting. So they throw their cloaks on the donkey, throw their cloaks on the road, trying to make it still a big, big celebration for this arriving king. But I wonder, if you, have you ever thought about what would have happened if Jesus hadn't given these precise details about the cult? Instead, he just said, I got, guys, I need a ride into the city. I wonder what the disciples would have found for him. I doubt a colt, a young donkey, was first and foremost in their minds. I picture a, a modern-day equivalent, Jesus and his disciples maybe coming into a big city, touching down at the, uh, the major airport on the outskirts of the city, and maybe while he's waiting for the bags, Jesus sends a couple of the disciples to the, uh, the car rental counters and says, guys, I've, I've rented a car, can you go pick it up for me? And as they go down to the counters, they're anticipating you know, I wonder what kind of luxurious vehicle Jesus has rented, has prepared for us to, to herald our entrance into the big city. 
And they get to the counter and say, we have a, we have a car to pick up. I believe there's a, it's a reservation. I said, certainly, what's the name? Uh, it's Jesus. Oh, let me just see. Okay, hold on a minute. Oh, yes, we, we have that reservation. Um, see, it's an economy car, and all the extras have been declined. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I think there must be some sort of mistake. This is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, yes, sir, no, we've, we've checked. No mistake here. Uh, it's been specifically booked as the economy model. Everything else declined. God's chosen king, worthy of all, all honor and glory and power, was deliberate to avoid the expectations of the world, of what a grand victory should look like. Instead, choosing the way of humility. And he teaches his disciples, he teaches you and I, to walk in those ways. In Mark chapter 10, he teaches them this. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point here is not that we should feel guilty if you ever rent a full-size car. But we can easily miss the scale and significance of Jesus' humility. Miss it and fail to understand it and therefore not follow it. It goes against our sinful nature to make much of ourselves and clamor for everything we think we deserve. But Jesus didn't stand on his rightful station to announce his victory with all the glory and honor he deserved as God's son. And therefore it is incongruous if we claim to follow a humble king in proud and self-exalting ways. C.J. Mahaney, in his um, very helpful little book, Humility, writes this. As sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. That sentence is crafted deliberately to show the focus on self. Our sinful natures encourage, encouraged by the culture around us, promote self among, amongst all things. CJ goes on to say, contrast that with the pursuit of tr true greatness as biblically defined, serving others for the glory of God. You'll notice that self doesn't appear in that definition. So let me ask you by way of application, do you model Jesus' way to greatness and victory by humility? Would somebody think that the Jesus you followed conquered through might and a display of power or through humble service and sacrifice? How do you seek to overcome opposition in whatever form it may come, come to you? Do you quickly adopt the world's ways, looking 
to look after number one first because no one else will. In disagreements, either face-to-face or online, do you insist on having the last word? Do you put people down and draw attention to their sins and failures while deliberately trying to hide your own? In a conflict, do you pray about the situation and pray for the other people involved, asking God to help you see not them, but yourself more clearly and committing all things into his care and direction? In Philippians chapter 2, we have perhaps the clearest description of Jesus' humility and his victory that comes from it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Embracing the popular king means embracing humility as the way to victory. Not seeking focus on ourselves, but seeking to serve others for the glory of Jesus, who died for all of us so that we give him all glory. And Jesus' death brings us to the second unpopular way of the king. Peace by death, is the second way we see by looking closely at this passage. In verse 37 to 38, let me read that again for us. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples rejoice and praise over miracles that they have seen, dealing with their present worldly needs, and they expect peace in a similar vein to, present, to, to deal with their present worldly needs. You see it in, if you look over the, the um, miracles through the Gospel accounts. After the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in John's Gospel, You read of the people coming to Jesus, not because they want to worship him, but because they want more food. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters the woman at the well, and he promises to give her living water dwelling up inside of her. And she says, oh, I'll have some of that, please, because I'm sick and tired of coming to this well. She thinks of it in terms of not having to, to draw water anymore. And here in this passage, there is the promise of the king which they interpret to mean peace over Rome. The disciples cannot see beyond what they see. Even when told explicitly, they could not see the whole picture. If you turn back a chapter into Luke chapter 18, 
verse 31, we actually see this little encounter of Jesus explaining everything in the clearest terms possible to his disciples. 1831 says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. All the miracles, all these mighty works that Jesus performed were signs pointing to the greatest one to come. Peace with God by Jesus dealing with sin through his death and resurrection. The disciples focused on Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem to what they wanted to celebrate. But it is not how Jesus enters the city that brings peace, but how he leaves it. Familiar verse, I'm sure, to many in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The gospel is the good news that Jesus brought peace between sinful man and a holy God, with whom we deserve no peace at all, because our sin and our rejection of him and of his good and right and holy ways really deserves only judgment and justice to be served against us. To be a Christian means embracing God's mercy and grace to us by holding fast to Jesus Christ as our only hope of forgiveness. And when we are forgiven, knowing that we have peace with God through Jesus' death for our transgressions against God's good and perfect ways and character. To embrace Jesus means to embrace all of his ways. And as, Luke, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, he said, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Again, by way of application for us as Jesus' followers who seek or claim to embrace the king and his ways. To receive Jesus' peace means fully submitting to his kingship, his rule and his authority over every part of me and of my life. And that means continually dying to myself, to my desire to rule with my authority over every part of my life. The author C.S. Lewis speaks in his book, Mere Christianity, that coming to Jesus with, with whatever problem besets you is like going to the dentist when you have a toothache. You expect him and you want him to deal with that toothache. 
But you need to be aware that, uh, like all good dentists, he doesn't ignore the other teeth. He is going to give you a complete treatment and prescribe to you whatever you need to deal with all the problems that he finds. Now, I know that some people are not fans of going to the dentist. But can I encourage you, there is no need to fear to come to Jesus. Do not fear any short-term discomfort while forgetting long-term benefit. He is gentle and kind. He is patient and he is gracious. But he is persistent. He is persistent to deal with the issues that he sees as the expert, not what you think is the problem. I remember one of the very first sermons that I, that I heard um, as a young 18-year-old, at least one of the first sermons I ever paid attention to. I remember the preacher forewarning us that if you became a Christian, expect to see more problems in your life. And what he meant by that was expect to start seeing things that God is putting his finger on that you had no idea was an issue. And when you submit your life to the kingship of Jesus, when you claim to bring something to him to bring peace in your life, he can do that. And he welcomes you. But don't expect him to finish there. He wants to exert his kingship rightly over everything in your life. It gives him the greatest glory, and it is your best. So when you come to him, if you bring sickness to him and he chooses to heal you, don't be surprised if maybe a little while later you feel compelled in your spirit to submit to him your finances like you've never done before. If you confess to him and ask for his help to break the bondage of pornography, and he begins to give you victory in that, do not be surprised if you start seeing that you also have a short temper. If you ask him to bring reconciliation in your family relationships and, and he works miraculously in that regard, maybe he will then put his finger on your love for the approval of others before too long. Embracing the popular King Jesus means embracing his unpopular ways to peace. With, by dying to self. Giving every area of your life in full submission to him. And that leads us to our third unpopular way of following this popular king. Rejoicing through repentance. Verse 39 says... Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's not really that clear as to why the disciples are asking Jesus, why the Pharisees are asking Jesus to correct his disciples. This could be another attempt to put down Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, and they don't want any of that kind of any of that talk. It could just be they didn't want to rock the boat with the Roman authorities, that they were holding this kind of fragile peace by being able to live their religious life the way they liked it. But any claims from this young upstart to be a king of any sort would not be looked upon well by Rome. 
whatever reason it is, they come to Jesus and tell him to be quiet. And I don't know about you, but my initial reading of verse 40, kind of, I kind of interpreted initially as, you know, Jesus deserves all praise from all of creation. And if the people don't shout out, then the very stones are just going to burst forth and praise Jesus. But upon further consideration and further examination of not just this passage, but everything around it and everything we understand in Scripture, it begs the question, what exactly would they shout? There are certain clues in this passage that suggest it's not praise. The verb itself in the original text that's used is not really often used for praise. Um, that verse is actually used in, that verb is used in verse 37 for praise, so Luke could have used it again. But the verb is usually used for a cry of desperation and a cry of alarm. And if you look ahead, just to the very next short passage after our passage we're reading today, we read about Jesus looking upon the city of Jerusalem, and he pronounces a prophecy of destruction upon the city that was going to come true. It came true in A.D. 70 when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and they sacked the city. And you see in these verses, if you, if you have there, look to verse 43. For the days will come upon you, Jesus said, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The stones of Jerusalem were not bursting ready to be let loose, bursting with praise. They were bursting with cries and pleas for mercy, desperately longing for the people to turn from their rejection of God. Embrace God's Savior and turn to His ways while they still could. That turning, turning from their wrong ways and turning to God's ways is called repentance. And the truth, as we find it in the Bible, isn't that mankind is just full of praise for their Creator and we just need an opportunity to see where to direct it. The truth of the Bible is that we are all self-focused and we'll gladly take more praise for ourselves. Thank you very much. You may ask for help when you need it and you may be genuinely grateful when you receive it for a short while. But if that's all we're giving thanks to Jesus for how he helps us, then the disciples here and, and our praise is really just shouting about how nice Jesus is. That Jesus is a nice guy. And you and I, we will not shout very long for nice guys when we think that we're pretty nice too. Instead, we are in danger. If that is the reason why we're rejoicing and praising Jesus, we are in danger for falling away. Just like the seed that fell among the rocks and was scattered and fell among the rocks, it, it shot up quickly. Because it had no roots, it fell away when trial and difficulties come. When confronted with the unpopular ways of following Jesus. 
The reality is that hell is full of people who are surprised to be there because they were happy to shout about how nice Jesus is. And they enjoyed the idea of victory and peace in this world, but saw no need for repentance. Jesus made it crystal clear as to why he came. Luke chapter 5 says, He answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus wants us to know how sick we are. That we fall short of God's righteousness. And as sinners, our only hope is not in trying harder, but is in God's mercy. And in that, we throw ourselves fully upon the mercy of God. And when we do that, we can be fully assured and rejoice in the hope of forgiveness that is proclaimed through Jesus' death and resurrection. When we receive his forgiveness by trusting in Christ's sacrifice alone, we have every reason to rejoice. Maybe you are attracted to Jesus for the things he does or the things he offers to you to deal with a particular issue in your life. Or maybe how you've seen him work in the lives of somebody else, somebody else perhaps near to you, a friend or family member. And you want to understand who this is that's had such a dramatic effect on their life and and maybe he can do something good for you too. It is right and it is good to give thanks and praise to Jesus and to God for the gifts and blessings they give to us in this life. But they are all intended to point to the ultimate gift, the ultimate blessing of eternal peace and life with him. Jesus wants us to know him fully and to praise him rightly. And for that, we need to go by the path of repentance for sin and know that it is only that way that we have hope for salvation. Maybe you've been drawn to this popular image of Jesus in the past, and now that you're seeing this unpopular path, these ways of humility and death to self and repentance, you are reluctant to embrace him fully, because you understand it means embracing his ways. Here again, Jesus' words to you from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The ways of Jesus do seem unpopular when rightly understood, and they seem hard, and to walk as a Christian is a constant struggle, against each one of these ways of humility, of dying to self, of repentance. But Jesus never leaves us alone to do these things by ourselves. And he never allows us to be tested beyond the help that he will give us to follow him. Even as mature Christians, we never move beyond a life of repentance of sin. 
It's there in God's continual forgiveness for sin through Jesus' shed blood that we will find cause to praise God continually for what he has done. Pastor Paul, this morning in his call to worship, read from Revelation chapter 5, just one verse there. Revelation chapter 5 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. The saved in heaven, whom we will join, are not singing of how nice Jesus is. They are singing of his shed blood. So how much repentance marks your Christian life? If rejoicing seems hard for you, then can I ask, is repentance a regular part of your interaction with God? And I don't mean simply lip service to say sorry for sins in a general sort of way. But are you confessing and trusting in Christ's death for specific ways in which you observe how you are not righteous in the way God calls you to? I'm not trying to put a downer on anybody. But the reality is, Jesus is there to be your Savior. And if you are not recognizing your need for a Savior, then you will not delight and rejoice in Him in the way He needs, He deserves, and He wants you to enjoy Him. As I conclude, if I can ask the band to come up. One final thing to observe from this passage in Luke of Jesus' arrival. We see that the disciples largely miss Jesus' ways. They embrace this popular king, but they miss his unpopular ways. But do not miss how gentle and gracious Jesus is toward them. He doesn't dismiss their praise. He doesn't agree with the Pharisees and says, you're absolutely right, they got it completely wrong. Guys, shut up. He receives the smallest evidence of God's work in their lives. They're looking to him. They're not seeing correctly, but they're looking to him. Let us, let us be gracious and gentle with one another. As you see a younger or a newer disciple, don't be too quick to steer them to embrace all the gospel, all the doctrines. Some are primary, some are not. Maturity comes with time. Parents in particular, and I'm speaking to myself chiefly here. How is your spirit towards your children? Are you more inclined to celebrate evidences of God's grace and to seek to fan into flame with encouragement the things you see him doing in their lives? Or are you quick to bring critique and point out areas in need of growth and change? Jesus sets us an example here and he is gentle with us when looking at our lives. All of us 
every one of us here, God invites and intends us to embrace his son, our king. The true king cannot be separated from his true ways. If you've tried, and if you're a Christian, if you've tried to embrace Jesus but ignored his ways of humility, of dying to self, of repentance, then I suspect you are pretty miserable. You cannot embrace the true Jesus Christ and try to live a life separated from his ways. And the fact that you are miserable is God's kindness to you. He is not done with you. He is not content to have only half of you. He is working, and he will not stop until every part of you is submitted to his ways, because his ways are the ways of eternal life. If that's you, if, if you are miserable, because you realize that you have given up on the way of humility, have given up on the idea of dying to self in, in a particular area of your life, that's protected. I'm not going to give that to God. If repentance is long forgotten in your Christian walk, then I have good news. Good news for you this morning. The physician's office is always open. And he is receiving new and old patients alike. He welcomes us all. And the way to come to him is through applying what we see here. Come humbly. Come repentant. Come willing to die to those parts of your life that are not submitted to him. But embrace the victory, the peace that is offered to us this morning and rejoice. Let me pray.